0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! Rights groups say over 200 people, including 23 children, have been killed in Iran since nationwide demonstrations began almost a month ago following the death of Massa Amini. We'll look at how the scope of the protests in Iran is widening. Then to the war in Ukraine, as the United Nations General Assembly votes 143 to 5 to condemn Russia's annexation of four territories seized from Ukraine.
1: The United Nations will not tolerate attempts at illegal annexation. We will never recognize it. These United Nations will not tolerate seizing a neighbor's land by force. We will stand up to it. These United Nations will not tolerate the destruction of the UN Charter.
0: We'll speak to a Ukrainian activist who's a member of the European Network of Solidarity with Ukraine, plus a Russian activist living in exile in Berlin. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations General Assemblies voted overwhelmingly to condemn Russia's annexation of four territories seized from Ukraine after Russia's military invaded in February. 143 countries voted Wednesday to reaffirm Ukraine's sovereignty within its internationally recognized borders. Just four countries sided with Russia, Belarus, Nicaragua, North Korea, and Syria, India and China abstained from Wednesday's vote. In Ukraine, Russia is continuing a stepped-up campaign of bomb and missile attacks following Saturday's explosion that damaged a key bridge linking Russia with the Russian and next Ukrainian territory of Crimea. Ukraine's government says at least 13 people were killed, 37 wounded by Russian strikes over the past 24 hours. Among the latest attacks, they say, are Iranian-made drones piloted by Russia that have blown up critical infrastructure facilities near the capital, Kiev. Meanwhile, the Zaporizhia nuclear plant lost external power Wednesday for the second time in five days after fighting knocked out an electrical substation offline. Workers activated emergency diesel generators needed to keep critical cooling systems online in order to prevent a radiation disaster. Power was restored after about eight hours. This comes after the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, met with Vladimir Putin Tuesday in St. Petersburg, where he urged the Russian president to agree to establish a security protection zone around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, the largest in Europe. Russia's warned the U.S. and its allies against allowing Ukraine to join NATO. This morning, a member of Russia's Security Council told Russian state media, quote, Kyiv is well aware that such a step would mean a guaranteed escalation to a World War III. The comments came as officials from 50 countries, including all 30 NATO countries, met in Brussels, where they pledged to step up arms shipments to Ukraine, including new air defense systems. Following the talks, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was asked about Russia's threats to use nuclear weapons.
1: Putin's saber-rattling is reckless. Nuclear saber-rattling is reckless and irresponsible. We don't expect to— to see and hear that kind of behavior from a major nuclear power. And so that's very dangerous, and you've heard a number of leaders around the world emphasize that.
0: Austin's comments come just days after Poland's president said he's open to stationing nuclear weapons on Polish soil and has discussed the idea with the United States. North Korea says its test launched two long-range strategic cruise missiles capable of delivering a nuclear warhead. It's the latest in a series of North Korean missile launches that have coincided with joint naval drills by the U.S., Japan and South Korea and waters off the Korean Peninsula. The Biden administration's authorized reformulated COVID-19 booster shots for children as young as five years old. On Wednesday, CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky approved emergency use of the vaccines produced by Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna just hours after the Food and Drug Administration authorized them. Only about 4% of eligible U.S. adults have received updated bivalent booster shots, which are meant to protect against two Omicron subvariants that currently make up most U.S. coronavirus infections. COVID 19 continues to kill nearly 400 people a day across the United States. At the White House, COVID task force leader, Dr. Ashish Jha, said frontline healthcare workers could face shortages of personal protective equipment this winter after the White House redirected resources away from the national stockpile in order to continue making vaccines widely available.
2: Is made just dramatically harder by congressional inaction. You can't fight a deadly virus without resources. And congressional inaction is really costly.
0: The Biden administration is investigating whether Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis misused COVID aid money to pay for flights that brought 48 Venezuelan asylum seekers from Texas to Massachusetts as part of a political stunt. The Treasury Department's inspector general said it's part of a larger probe into how states used or misused billions of dollars of public health funds dispersed under the American Rescue Plan. The Biden administration says it's reached a deal with Mexico— That will allow for 24,000 Venezuelan migrants with financial sponsors to enter the U.S. while expelling others who don't meet the economic criteria or who cross the border outside a port of entry. The U.S. will expel those migrants to Mexico under the pandemic-era Title 42 program. This comes amidst reports the Biden administration is preparing to scale down sanctions on Venezuela to allow the Chevron Corporation to resume pumping oil there. L.A. City Councilmember Nuri Martinez has resigned from her position amidst the political firestorm sparked by her racist comments recently leaked on an audio recording. Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon, her fellow council members who are also on the recording, have yet to resign despite the mounting outrage. Among the racist comments which attacked black and indigenous communities in L.A., Martinez went after the adopted black son of white council member Mike Bonnet. He addressed the hateful remarks at an emotional city council meeting Tuesday.
3: My husband and I are both uh, raw and angry and heartbroken and sick for our family and for Los Angeles. I am reeling from the revelations of what these people said, trusted servants who voiced hate and bile. Public officials are supposed to call us to our highest selves, and these people stabbed us and shot us and and cut the spirit of Los Angeles.
0: On Wednesday, California Attorney General Rob Bonta said he would investigate the recent redistricting process in Los Angeles as a result of the city council scandal. Nigeria's government says 76 people drown when a ferryboat capsize in a flooded river in the southern state of Anambra. It's the latest disaster to flow from a wetter-than-normal rainy season that many Nigerians say has led to the worst flooding in at least a generation. Officials say about 500 people have died as a direct result from flooding this year, with 1.4 million people displaced by floodwaters. In Washington, D.C., climate activists held a bicycle protest Wednesday outside the World Bank as it held its annual meetings. The demonstration came after a new report found the World Bank financed at least $14.8 billion in fossil fuel development since the signing of the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. That's despite pledges by World Bank officials to stop supporting oil and gas projects. This is Mark Moreno-Pasquale, a protester from the Philippines.
1: But what we're seeing now is that they're, they're funding more than $15 billion on fossil fuels. And, and this isn't even the complete picture. Uh, there's more money flowing through uh, indirect financing, and we're seeing that being um, coursed through uh, coal power plants in the Philippines and Indonesia. And we're demanding the bank to stop doing this right now.
0: The House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is holding what could be its last public hearing today. Lawmakers are expected to share more evidence that Trump deliberately encouraged his violent supporters who attacked the Capitol, despite knowing some were armed and refused to step in as the situation spiraled out of control. This comes as a witness in a trial for five members of the far-right. Oath says the group kept a large stash of firearms in a hotel room before the Capitol riot. Democracy Now! will be live-streaming the January 6th hearing starting at 1 p.m. Eastern today at democracynow.org. A Connecticut jury has ordered Alex Jones to pay nearly a billion dollars—that's nine hundred sixty five million dollars in damages to the families of eight victims of the Sandy Hook massacre and an FBI agent for repeatedly spreading conspiracy theories about the mass shooting and inflicting years of suffering on the grieving families. This is Erica Lafferty Garbatini, daughter of Don Lafferty Hawksprung, who was the principal of the Sandy Hook Elementary School when she was shot dead.
4: I'm incredibly proud and thankful for the message that was sent here today. The truth matters. And those who profit off of other people's pain and trauma will pay for what they have done. There will be more Alex Joneses in this world. But what they learned here today is that they absolutely will be held accountable.
0: That was the daughter of Don Lafferty Hawksprung, the principal of Sandy Hook Elementary School. She was killed December 14, 2012, along with 25 others, 20 of them schoolchildren. And in labor news, T-Mobile workers are forming an independent union covering some 300 social media customer service workers. T-Mobile merged with Sprint in 2019, leading to thousands of layoffs. The workers say they were inspired by the recent unionization efforts at Starbucks and Amazon. This is Tyler Rockmore, a member of the newly formed T-Force Social Care Alliance Union.
2: If we don't do something as far as getting federal protection through unionizing, Our jobs are next. And, you know, ever since the merger with T-Mobile, it's been more and more layoffs, more
0: and more pay cuts, more and more work pressure. So this is this is what we feel is the right thing to do is stand in solidarity for worker uh, rights. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the war and peace report. When we come back, human rights groups say over 200 people, including 23 children, have been killed in Iran since nationwide demonstrations began almost a month ago. We'll look at how the scope of the protests are only widening. Stay with us.
3: This bitter, it's bitter.
5: Rooted bad
3: What good is love
5: That no one wants to share And if my life my life is like the dust that
3: I'd the glove
0: Tell me what good am I This bitter earth performed by a Aretha Franklin Recently declassified documents, over 270 pages, show the FBI monitored the late soul singer for decades over her support for the civil rights movement and her friendships with Martin Luther King Jr. She offered to post bail for Angela Davis. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermee. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Iran, where anti-government protests are in their fourth week, sparked last month by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, while in custody of Iran's so-called morality police. On Monday, oil workers went on strike in support of the protests. Meanwhile, the death of 16-year-old Nika Shakarami has ignited more public rage. The girl's family says she disappeared after being chased by security forces for burning her headscarf during a protest and was found 10 days later in a morgue. Human rights groups say more than 200 people have been killed in the deadly crackdown on protests, including an estimated 23 children, with hundreds more injured and thousands arrested. Iran's Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, condemned the widening protests and address Wednesday.
1: Some are either agents of the enemy or if they aren't agents of the enemy, then they are aligned with the enemy, with the same goals they take to the streets. Others are just excited. The second group can be fixed with cultural works. The first group must be dealt with by judicial and national security officials. Some say the atmosphere should not become one of national security, and we agree to where it's possible. The atmosphere in the country should not become one of national security, but the cultural programs should be differentiated From the judicial and security matters.
0: This comes as the chief of Iran's judiciary has now ordered judges to issue harsh sentences for what he called the quote, main elements of riots. Iran's education minister, Yusuf Nouri, said in an interview Tuesday some teenage students' protesters are being detained and taken to what he called psychological institutions, saying they quote, can return to class after they've been reformed, unquote. One of the many teenagers reportedly killed by Iranian security forces was 15-year-old Savash Mahmoudi. This is his mother calling for justice in the streets of Tehran.
1: This is my Siovash, my son. I will have a funeral for him in Alabad, in Sahib Asman Mosque. Siovash was a boy from Shirak Beheshi neighborhood. We have lived here for several years. I was a single mom and raised this kid alone. They have killed my son so unfairly and cowardly at the end of this street. They shot him in the head. This is Iran's Siovash. This is Iran's Siovash.
0: For more, we're joined by two guests. Joining us in London is Raha Bareini, a human rights lawyer who is Amnesty International's Iran researcher. And in Washington, D.C., Reza Eslan is with us, scholar, producer, author. His recent piece for Time is headlined The Iranian People's Hundred-Year Struggle for Freedom. His new book is titled An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Rahab Ereini, let's begin with you. Can you talk about the broadening scope of the protests and the Iran government's Crackdown on them. What have you documented at Amnesty International?
6: Hello, Amy. Thank you for having me. The Iranian authorities have shown a deadly resolve to crush the spirit of resistance among Iran's youthful population and to retain their iron grip on power. Amnesty International has documented widespread unwarranted use of firearms and lethal force by Iran's security forces. The Iranian security forces have been firing live Simply to disperse crowds and to uh, crush the protests. The deadly crackdown has so far left over 144 victims that we have identified by name. Among them are at least 24 children. Their names and uh, details of uh, their deaths have been documented by Amnesty International in a report that we are issuing uh, today. Among the children are three girls who were beaten to death in a the vast majority of the boys were shot by live ammunition in their uh, head, chest, or uh, upper uh, body. The vast majority of those killed have been. Uh, Killed due to security forces firing live ammunition at their head or chest, which shows the intention of the security forces to kill protesters or uh, their knowledge that uh, their uh, firing of live ammunition would result in death, and they nevertheless uh, proceeded with uh, these uh, deadly uh, activities in order to crush uh, the protests. We have also documented widespread patterns of torture and other ill-treatment, including severe beatings of protesters and bystanders in the streets at the hands of security forces. Amnesty International obtained uh, some leaked documents uh, from the uh, national headquarters of armed forces, which is the highest military body in Iran, and on the 21st of September, they ordered armed commanders in all provinces across Iran to crush the protesters' f- severely and mercilessly. And since then, we documented an escalated use of lethal force, an escalation in the use of lethal force by the Iranian security forces. And just on the 9th of 21st uh, of September alone, dozens of men, women and children were killed. Uh, the next deadliest day was the 30th of uh, September in Zahedan, Sistan, Baluchistan province, which is populated by Iran's oppressed uh, Baluchi minority. The security forces opened uh, fire on uh, protesters and bystanders, and in the course of several hours, they killed over 85 men, women and uh, children.
7: Reza Aslan, if you could uh, uh, talk about, respond to the scale of these protests and them, that the protests continuing despite the uh, Iranian regime's increasingly brutal crackdown on the protesters, and the fact we just heard in our introduction that Ayatollah Ali uh, Khamenei has dismissed many of the protesters as, quote, agents of
2: the enemy. De rigueur. Anytime there's any kind of instability in the country or protests against his regime, he's always going to lash out at the United States and Israel and place blame on outsiders for what is, in effect, the failures of his own uh, leadership and the regime itself. But I think it's what's important to understand is that the scale of this backlash from the government, the horrific violence that uh, we just heard is uh, indicative of just what a threat the regime believes these protests are, because as you rightly note, they are not diminishing. In fact, they are expanding. And they're not just expanding in scope and scale and size, much more importantly, they're expanding in terms of a broader coalition. You mentioned that now business uh, interests, merchants, unions um, are going on strike. Uh, we have ethnic minorities, not just in Balochistan, but also the, the Kurdish areas of Iran that are uh, clamoring for independence. Um, and then in, we, in a very surprising move, actually, we're even seeing uh, regime supporters, ostensible regime supporters supporters, more sort of the pious masses. In cities like Qom, which is, of course, the religious capital of Iran, we're seeing widespread protests there, and not just protests. Um, against the morality police or or in response to the death of Masa Amini and so many other young children, but protests very brazenly calling for the downfall of Ayatollah Khomeini being chanted in what is essentially Khomeini, uh, Khomeini's backyard, pardon me, in Qom. And so I think what's happening now is that this coalition of Iranians on the street is becoming a serious threat to the very existence of the Islamic Republic. And unfortunately, as a result, I think we're going to see an even bloodier response from the military and from the regime in the coming weeks. And
7: Reza, can you talk about the, the demographics, the, the groups of people who are not participating? You pointed out in a recent piece uh, that younger clergy as well as seminary students have not yet joined. But if they do, uh, you think that would lead to a substantial change. Uh, explain.
2: Well, I think most outsiders don't understand how unpopular the Islamic Republic, the theological underpinning of clerical rule in Iran, is amongst uh, the sort of rank-and-file Shia clergy. Um, this is not the majority view, the so-called velayat-e faqih, which is the theological underpinning that allows for clerics, clergy in Iran to have direct political control over the country. There is no— th- theological history behind this idea. On the contrary, it actually violates 14 centuries of Shia quietism when it comes to political uh, influence over, over government. But what uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic, did in coming up with this idea was essentially create a whole new way of thinking about what Shi'ism is as a religion. And while it is true that amongst the the upper echelon of the clergy, the Ayatollahs, certainly those in government positions, this theory has become entrenched, the truth of the matter is that in the seminaries in Iran, and especially in Qom, Younger seminarians, mid-level clerics, um, uh, the sort of what we would refer to as kind of local imams, um, are not just debating the very uh, legitimacy— of clerical rule, but are now seemingly coming out and rejecting it more and more vocally. And my argument was, when you start seeing that uh, kind of start to roll out and younger seminary students, um, uh, mid-level clerics begin to speak out against the very legitimacy of the theocracy of the state, well, that might be pretty much all she wrote when it comes to the clerical regime.
0: Rahabarani, I want to specifically focus on these women-led protests and the children. Uh, you have a report that was embargoed until today on the deaths of the children. Um, and we just reported on the education minister saying they're taking some children and they're putting them in institutions to re-educate them. Um, can you talk about what you have found? And also this issue of the, of Balochistan. Uh, can, For people around the world who may not be familiar with the geography of Iran, the significance of the killings of more than 80 people there—
6: The Iranian authorities have waged an all-out assault on children who have courageously taken to the streets in order to demand a future without political oppression and injustice. As your other guest just explained, these protests are very youthful in nature, and school children and young university students have been visibly present in protests calling for an end to the Islamic Republic system and for Iran's transition to a political system that respects their fundamental rights and uh, freedoms. In response, the Iranian authorities have used horrific uh, forms of uh, force, including live ammunition, in order to uh, kill these children or otherwise harm and injure them. We have documented the names of 24 children. Uh, four of them were beaten to death. Uh, two of them uh, died after uh, they were shot with metal pellets at close. Range and the rest were shot with uh, live ammunition, often in their head, chest, or upper body. The Iranian authorities have the blood of children on their hands, and the more distressing pattern is that instead of uh, conducting any investigations, they are in fact. Uh, now harassing and intimidating the families of these children in order to coerce them into making video-recorded statements and accept the authorities' bogus narrative that the children committed suicide or died during car accidents. This is not the first time that the Iranian authorities try to cover up the crimes that they uh, commit, including against children in the context of protests. During the nationwide protests of 2019, the Iranian authorities also unlawfully killed hundreds of men and women, including 21 children. The fact that they have been able to continue these successive waves of protest bloodshed is because of a deep crisis of systemic impunity that has long prevailed in Iran. And the price of this impunity is being paid by the lives of um, people in the streets in Iran. And this is because the uh, the, uh, There is no independent judiciary in Iran to conduct investigations, and the scale and gravity of the crimes committed has not received attention and the critical, meaningful action that it should receive at the international level from member states of the UN Human Rights Council. The events in um Last Friday on the 30th of September showed the scale of the crackdown and is an extreme manifestation of the deadly uh, crackdown that the Iranian authorities have long waged on Iran's uh, oppressed uh, minorities. We have uh, documented extensive use of lethal force and high numbers of death in Balochistan, which is populated by Iran's oppressed Baluchi minority, and in Kurdistan and Kerman Shah and West. Azerbaijan provinces that are populated by Iran's oppressed Kurdish minority. Uh, as um, uh, you may know, uh, the protest actually started in Kurdish populated cities because uh, Mahsa was uh, um, of Kurdish origin. And now there is solidarity among uh, Iranians all over the country. And um, this is the inspiring aspect of the protest that, uh, uh, that it uh, crosses across ethnic groups and um, a class divides and has encompassed demands for uh, a transition to a, a different political uh, system. Um, and in this uh, relation, uh, many uh, protesters uh, are, and commentators in Iran consider these protests as a, a nationwide uprising against the aging uh, theocratic system that has long engaged in systematic human rights violations and granted absolute impunity to those who kill, torture and um, harm people in the street in the context of protests and behind prison uh, walls.
7: Reza, let's look at this uh, protest in historical uh, context. You've written that of the three major revolutions over the course of the last century in Iran, the 1906 Constitutional Revolution provides the best historical analogy to the present uprising. In a recent L.A. Times piece, you write, quote, "'The Persian Constitutional Revolution may not have transformed Iran into a real democracy,' But it set the precedent for the exercise of people power in Iran, creating one of the most robust
2: protest cultures in the world.
1: Yes, the 19. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, the 1906 uh, constitutional revolution was not just the first of Iran's three major revolutions of the 20th century, but it was the first democratic revolution in the Middle East. And while it had a very simple goal, which was the creation of a constitution that would outline the rights and privileges of all citizens and the creation of an elected parliament that would uh, serve to check the absolute authority of the Shah uh, of Iran, and while it did achieve that goal for a very, very brief while until uh, autocracy was returned to Iran with uh, the ascendance of Reza Khan or Reza Shah Pahlavi um, and the Pahlavi regime, which it itself suffered two more revolutions, one in 53 and one in 1979, I think what it reminds us is that the women and men and, frankly, children who are on the streets right now dying for their most basic rights, the rights to to have a voice, uh, to have a say in the decisions that rule their lives, to be able to say and think what they wish—again, the the most basic of human rights— that this struggle has been going on not for a couple of weeks, not for a couple of months, but for more than a century in Iran against successive uh, governments, be they the Shahs or now the Islamic Republic. But I think that this time, I have to be honest with you, having studied history, having lived through the 1979 revolution, this time feels different. There is a fearlessness that we are seeing on the streets, particularly by young women, by teenage women who simply have had enough and are not willing to do what successive or or previous generations who had also protested, who had also risen up against the regime, have been willing to do, which is to accept a bit more freedom, except a little bit of, uh, uh, of more sort of space, maybe in the private realm, in exchange for getting off the streets. What we are hearing right now, despite the fact that it is a very diverse coalition of old and young, religious and secular, uh, we have women in chadors marching next to women wearing jeans and no veils, despite that, there is a unified call here for not reform— But for the downfall of the regime, the regime has failed its children. And that, not just in a human way, but deeply in a Persian cultural way, is about the most shameful act that you can possibly imagine, which is why this message is working. The message of shame, shame, shame is working. What we haven't seen yet, however, is the international community actually shaming the Iranian government. I'm very glad to hear that the United Nations had a vote condemning Russia's illegal annexation of parts of Ukraine. I am waiting for the United Nations vote condemning a murderous regime for kidnapping children and taking them to what they themselves refer to as psychological camps for re-education. There is no place in the modern world for such actions. And while the United States, unfortunately, can't do much about it, we have already blanket sanctioned Iran for four decades, there's really very little influence that we have The United Nations still has major influence in Iran, especially at a time in which that government's economy is on the verge of collapse. It's time to hear the voice of the international community as loud as possible to condemn these inhumane actions by the Islamic Republic.
0: Raz Aslan, um, the supreme leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei, is very old. He has cancer, grooming his son to be the next leader. Um, can you talk about what that means? And have you seen any defection in the military at this point and among the police?
2: Well, we have seen anecdotal evidence and videos of security personnel who have joined the protesters. We haven't yet to see any hint of cracks in the military hierarchy, though that does not mean that that's not happening. The military, the Revolutionary Guard in Iran is extraordinarily powerful. In fact, many Iran watchers will tell you that the Revolutionary Guard is the real power in Iran, that the Ayatollahs are basically the forward face of the government, but the the levers of control are in the hands of the Revolutionary Guard. And that may very well be true. So we're all waiting to see how the Revolutionary Guard and the military is going to respond to these unceasing demands on the street. But the real spark that I think Iran watchers are waiting for is what happens If these protests continue, and this is a long, long marathon of a revolution, and in the midst of this, the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, who, as you rightly note, is very sick and very old, dies because the succession to the third supreme leader was always going to be problematic. Uh, Again, this is not a very popular idea amongst the Shia clergy. And the notion that Khamenei, who, by all uh, reports coming out, Of Iran has been grooming his son Mojtaba, who is a mid-level cleric who has no real religious credentials to take on such a role, but is nevertheless being groomed to uh, succeed his father. Is going to basically put the last nail in the coffin of any kind of legitimacy for clerical rule. Basically, at this point, the supreme leadership has become just another word for Shah. It's just another kind of monarchy, Uh, and so I think even at that point. Diehard regime supporters are gonna start thinking twice. We're all waiting to see what the next spark is going to be. The spark of the death of Masa Amini really turned the protests that were already taking place in Iran over the last six months over deteriorating economic conditions into a nationwide revolution. If Khamenei were to die, if there were to be some conversation about succession. That, I think, might really create uh, a whole new level of revolution here. Already on the streets, by the way, I should mention, amongst the many, many chants that we are hearing these protesters uh, chant on the streets of Iran, a common chant is, Mojtaba, Mojtaba, we will die before we see you as the leader.
0: Reza Aslan, we want to thank you for being with us, author of the new book, An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. We'll link to your article in Time, The Iranian People's Hundred-Year Struggle for Freedom, and Raha Bahreini, Amnesty International's Iran researcher, human rights lawyer, speaking to us from London. Next up, as the U.N. General Assembly votes 143 to 5 to condemn Russia's annexation of four territories seized from 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 Ukraine. We'll speak with a Ukrainian activist, a member of the European Network of Solidarity with Ukraine, and a Russian activist living in exile in Berlin. Stay with us.
3: برای توی کوچه رخ برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خوهرت خوهرامون برای تغییر محصا که پوسیدن برای شمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبال گرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ولیست و درخت های برای پیروز و اعتمال برای سک های بیگناه ممنوعه برای گریه های بی برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هایم بار برای نخبه های زندانی برای کودکان افسانی برای این همه برای غیر تکراری برای این شوار های تو خالی برای آوار خونه های پوشاری برای احساس آراش برای خورش و because...
0: Of by the Iranian singer Shirvan Hajipur, It's become the unofficial anthem of the Iran protests. The song's lyrics are taken entirely from messages Iranians have posted online about why they're protesting. Baraya has received more than 80 percent of the submissions for the Grammy Award, which honors a song dedicated to social change. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheik. We turn now to the war in Ukraine. Air raid sirens were heard across parts of Ukraine today as Russia launched a fourth day of missile strikes targeting multiple Ukrainian cities and towns. Many of the strikes have targeted Ukraine's electricity system, leaving many areas without power. Ukrainian officials said some of the Russian attacks near Kiev were carried out by Iranian-made drones. This comes as Western leaders are vowing to provide more arms to Ukraine, as well as new air defense systems. Russia escalated its attack on Ukraine after a massive explosion Saturday damaged a key bridge connecting Russia to occupied Crimea. Meanwhile, at the United Nations, the General Assembly has voted 143 to 5 To condemn Russia's annexation of four territories seized from Ukraine, the four countries joining Russia were Belarus, Nicaragua, North Korea and Syria. This is Linda Thomas-Greenfield, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations.
1: The United Nations will not tolerate attempts at illegal annexation. We will never recognize it. These United Nations will not tolerate seizing a neighbor's land by force. We will stand up to it. These United Nations will not tolerate the destruction of the UN Charter.
0: Thirty-five nations, including China and India, abstained from the UN vote condemning Russia's annexation. This is Jin Shuang, China's Deputy UN Ambassador.
4: We have always believed that any action taken by the General Assembly should be conducive to the de-escalation of the situation, should be conducive to the early resumption of dialogue, and should be conducive to the promotion of a political solution to this crisis. The draft resolution submitted to this emergency special session for voting will not help achieve the above-mentioned objectives. Therefore, the Chinese delegation will abstain.
0: To talk more about the war in Ukraine, we're joined by two guests. Arshak Makishan is an exiled Russian anti-war human rights and climate activist. We spoke to him in Moscow just before he fled Russia in March, now based in Berlin, the Russian government currently trying to revoke his Russian citizenship. We're also joined by Hanna Perakhoda. She is a Ukrainian Ph.D. student in history at University of Lausanne in Switzerland. She's a member of the European Network for Solidarity. With Ukraine, born and raised in Donetsk, eastern Ukraine, and speaks both Russian and Ukrainian. Hannah, let's begin with you. Uh, You were in Moscow uh, doing your academic studies right before Russia invaded Ukraine. And you grew up in Donetsk in the occupied region of Ukraine, where this vote just took place that the vast majority of countries in the world just condemned um, at the United Nations. Can you talk about the significance of both? What was it like to grow up there? What do you understand about that vote and to be in Russia right before the invasion?
5: Um, Okay, thanks for having me. Well, it's a little bit difficult question uh but he has been a ukrainian uh born in donetsk and have all my family in donetsk um actually the war started for me not this year but eight years ago uh and me my circle of friends and my family were affected by the war when the russia started in uh 2014 uh and being um in uh, moscow just before i was there for my academic research and uh, my academic research is in a big uh, big part of it is about the uh, russian uh, imperial and national ideology uh, so being a historian and working on russian contemporary imperialism and also in a Russian imperialism in historic perspective, I was kind of uh, more prepared, I think, for the invasion than most of, of the people who were kind of very surprised by it.
7: Hannah, you've talked about uh, some of the reasons that you think uh, uh, Putin launched an uh, invasion of, of this scale. Uh, and you've also argued uh, that we need to take into account the national and imperial dimensions uh, of the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, uh, and that the resistance that the Ukrainians are putting up is most analogous to anti-colonial struggles. Could you elaborate on that? And explain uh, the reasons that you think uh, uh, Russia launched this invasion.
5: Um, Well, yes, Uh, for me, one of the the dimensions of Russian contemporary imperialist ideology is that uh, it is driven by the resentment of a fallen empire and what is important uh, by a resentment of a nationalizing empire. Uh, Actually, the national narrative of Ukraine and that of Russia are in kind of in a total contradiction in this sense. Ukraine as a political community can only survive outside of Russia uh, because Russia denies its right to exist. While for Russian nationalist, Russian nationalist uh, elites, their nation is incomplete, if not impossible, without Ukraine within it. So these two narratives are kind of mutually exclusive. And these kind of nationalizing empires like Russia, uh, today's Russia, are very dangerous because in the current uh, Russian perspective, Ukrainians must recognize that they are Russians. Otherwise, they must be destroyed. And this is not a marginal discourse. This is something you hear every day on the Russian state TV channels. So, yeah, it's a state that invades another independent state, protagonizes war crimes at a huge scale and at the same time holds a discourse uh, and practices that can be qualified as an incitation to genocide because there are, for example, numerous cases when children are separated from the Ukrainian families sent to Russia and adopted there. But I want to... Emphasize uh, that, of course, history is important, but it cannot uh, fully explain the reasons of this invasion. Because history is a source of, of discourses and practices, but in order to influence the reality, these discourses must be reactivated. And the invasion of Ukraine is not some kind of a historical. Uh, inertia uh, the ideology of putin is a product of you know past two centuries but political putin's political regime uh, that reactivates these uh, ideas is a product of the past like 30 20 years
7: Ashak uh, Makishan, you you uh, fled uh, uh, Russia earlier this year, very soon after the invasion. Uh, could you explain why you left and what the state of opposition to this war in Russia now is? And, and respond to what Hannah said.
4: Um, before this war, we were living in an authoritarian regime. I was doing activism in Russia. I was protesting. Uh, but uh, after this war, yeah, we we were trying to organize protests. We were protesting every day, every weekend. But now, Russia is not an authoritarian regime; it's a dictatorship, and uh, our. Instruments, uh, peaceful protest, they are not working anymore in Russia. So we are thinking to go somewhere to think what to do next. And yeah, now you cannot have a revolution in Russia just uh, with uh, peaceful protest and propaganda in Russia is working uh, very well and they are using yeah, a lot of money from Europe, a lot of money from the vault that are coming from fossil fuels, and now they're it's they're earning more money than before the war on fossil fuels, and they are using this money to manipulate with people's opinions. They are using this money to to continue this war. So yeah. Uh, Peaceful protests, they are not working anymore in Russia, so I i think I can be more effective using my social media, using my voice uh, to speak up against the war when I am not in prison or not tortured like many of my friends are being now who are still in Russia, so... It was a more strategic decision. It was not because I am afraid. Yeah, It's not about yeah, being afraid because we want to be effective and Russian civil society needs a representation because Russia will have a future and Russian people want to have a place in the future. Otherwise, Russian propaganda is using it against Ukraine. It's using uh, to mobilize people for the war. But I think the Russian people, they, they are not... They are not supporting the war. They do not want to die for Putin's ambitions, for Putin's imperialistic ambitions. And uh, they, they want na- their normal lives back. And so I'm trying to raise my voice. I'm trying to represent Russian civil society. Yes, Putin is a terrorist. He This war was a terrible thing. The Russian state is a terrorist state. I agree with that. But we need to, to think for solutions. And, of course, negotiations with Putin Putin is not a solution. It's wrong to have negotiations with people like them. But we need to start a dialogue with Russian civil society because Russian civil society is part of solutions. We do understand that imperialism is bad. We do understand that fascism is bad. And we are trying to oppose Putin. We're trying to 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 create ways to oppose him and there is anti-war movement in Russia and they deserve every kind of help that is possible and uh, we need to talk about it, I think.
0: I wanted to ask Hannah Perakhoda, as you speak to us from Switzerland, again, born and raised in Donbass, studied in uh, Moscow just before the invasion. Um, You talk about, um, in order for conditions of peace to be achieved, Russia's got to withdraw um, from Ukraine. Um, You also advocate the dissolution not only of NATO, uh, but also The Russian dominated military alliance. Um, Can you talk about this and how your anti imperialist views have changed or not uh, through this invasion and occupation by Russia of Ukraine?
5: Um, Okay. Um, Well, uh, this is a very complex question. And I think I would go in the same, uh, more or less the same direction as. uh, previous speaker. Um, I think there is a kind of um, my, my position on uh, uh, imperialism was um, provoked and my thinking about it was provoked by uh, um, a stereotype um, which I heard a lot uh, in the Western countries, in the left uh, milieus um, a stereotype that says that this war started because Putin was uh, scared by NATO or because he was humiliated by the West uh in my opinion it's quite the opposite uh, he started uh, the war when NATO was weak and he felt like everybody would let him do it like it because it was always the case until now uh he knows that the rich countries uh dependent on Fossil fuels on oil and gas that these countries continued actually to trade with him for years when he was already uh, killing uh, Chechens or Syrians and even when he started a war in Ukraine. Um, eight years ago, nothing changed fundamentally. So, yes, I agree with my previous speaker, and this is something that I want to empathize on uh, every time I speak or write on this issue. Uh, the key the key word uh, for me uh, is impunity and economic uh, th- cynicism of uh, the global north of the rich northern countries and western countries. And I think when we talk about this war, we tend to overestimate the extent to which the behavior of Russian elites is motivated by real security concerns. Yes, their attack on Ukraine is basically an attempt to preserve the security. But it is not the security of Russia that they preserve. They are preserving the security of their political regime. And to ignore uh, the difference between the two means that we forget that Russia is not Putin. And I want to say the same thing that the previous speaker, that uh, it is Russia, it's Russian ordinary people. And their interests are exactly on the opposite uh, to the interests of Putin and his and he's a uh, mafia. So, um, I mean, if we uh, disregard uh, Russian internal politics, the relations between the ruling classes and society of this country, if we adopt uh, this kind of a geopolitical perspective, which I had also before, uh, uh, we won't be able to understand anything about this war. And I think this war showed me and showed a lot of people around me that. It is not so much about Ukraine. It's about Russian internal, uh, relationship between elites and people. It's about Russian predatory elites, uh, trying to preserve their regime, the regime that allowed them to plunder Russia in total impunity for years. And yeah, Putin's regime needed a real war because he thought it would stabilize his crumbling, his crumbling power. So for me, the changement in this perception and uh, how to uh, think about the uh, imperialism is to be able to understand what are the internal reasons, what, are, what is happening inside of Russia. Because if we adopt as just a geopolitical perspective, it is a very easy and lazy way to an- analyze the world and uh, it doesn't work. <laughs>
7: Uh, Arsha, could you could you respond uh, to what Hannah said in particular, uh, the uh, feelings of uh, and perceptions of ordinary Russians vis-à-vis the, the the Putin uh, regime? Uh, you've also talked about the mass mobilization, the conscription that's uh, uh, taking place now of Russians. Uh, hundreds of thousands of them have fled, and many uh, who've spoken to the media, though they've not reveal their names out of fear for their uh, safety, as well as the safety of their families still in Russia. They've said things like, how can I take part in a war without a wish to win the war? This is a war of the Russian government, not of the Russian people, uh, and so on, comments like this. So, so your sense of what uh, ordinary Russians are, are feeling now and their and their sense of the Putin regime?
4: Russian ordinary people are feeling horror, because they are left alone with dictatorship, they are left alone with millions of police, and this police is financed by Europe by fossil fuel money. So we need to to, to help them to ex- escape the war. Because it's very strange for me when European countries are shutting down the borders, for people who are trying to escape from mobilization, because if these people would be able to escape the mobilization, then they won't be taking part in the war. Uh, of course, yeah, they can be more brave and fight Putin uh, by bare hands, but it's not possible to fight a police state. Putin has millions of police and uh, it's not easy to have a revolution. You cannot go just to Kremlin with your bare hands and uh, yeah have a revolution. It's not so easy to have a revolution in dictatorship where all media are controlled by government, where all independent media were declared foreign agents. Arshak, and we have to 10 be. seconds. So, yeah.
0: We have 10 seconds, Arshak. Yeah. Did you, if you could finish your statement.
4: yes. Uh, so, Russian people, they don't support the war. They are afraid to oppose the war, I think.
0: Well, Arshak Makijan, I want to thank you for being with us again. Your own citizenship in Russia uh, is threatened to be revoked, exiled Russian anti-war human rights activists in Berlin, and Hannah Perkhoda want to thank you for joining us from Lausanne. I'm Amy Goodman with Armin Shea.